0: New City, I I've, I've so look forward uh, to preaching this morning's scripture text. This is one of the great joys of being a pastor, anticipating God's blessings for his people by preaching the same text he's used to bless me with all week long. And the Lord has been working powerfully in my own heart these last seven days, drawing out my love for him. I, I can truly say He's given me a new sense of joy in my salvation while granting me a renewed desire to seek God's face in bold, confident prayer. And it's my prayer that you would share in these same blessings now. But let me say up front, uh, this is one of the more complex and even controversial texts in John's Gospel. So God's grace assisting me, I want to simplify this as much as I possibly can, which is why the sermon insert in your bulletin, that outline, looks as intimidating as it does. All the hard stuff is in that outline. The sermon is easy. Uh, Look with me at the very top heading where it says, The Big Picture. And this is taken from Andrew Nacelli's excellent book, Let Go and Let God. A survey and analysis of Keswick theology, which is by far, it's by far the most helpful book on the doctrine of sanctification I've ever read, and to which I'm indebted this morning. Look at the big picture. In John 15, Jesus contrasts genuine believers, that is, fruitful branches that remain in the vine, with phony believers, that is, fruitless branches that do not remain in the vine. Remain in me as I also remain in you means obey my words and let my words remain in you. And and friends, that's the key to understanding the whole passage. Jesus abides in believers to the degree that his words, his teachings abide in us. And believers abide in Jesus to the degree that we obey his words. Every believer abides in Jesus to some degree resulting in different degrees of fruitfulness failing to abide results in eternal damnation and there are all sorts of implications and results which then flow from that truth such as the biblical grounds for the believer's perseverance in the faith that's a big part of our passage today, the biblical grounds for the believer's perseverance in the faith, along with a more biblically precise understanding of the doctrine of sanctification, our progressive holiness in this life, our obedience to God, and how that relates to our justification, God's legal declaration that we're in right standing with him. But this text also instructs God's people in the matter of prayer. Christians are to offer up to God the Father scripturally informed prayers in Jesus' name. And God the Father will answer those scripturally informed prayers for the sake of his own glory. Thus showing us to be Jesus' disciples. You see, this this text is a treasure store. (laughs) All that good stuff in just eight verses. Today's sermon is entitled, I Am the True Vine. I probably don't get any points uh, for originality on that one, but this is the seventh and last of Jesus' I Am sayings in John's Gospel. We've covered them all now in this sermon series. I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door. I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth and the life, and now these words that Jesus speaks on the night before he's crucified, I am the true vine. And what we learn as we make our way through this passage is that real, true, genuine people of God are those branches livingly vitally connected to Jesus, the true vine. Branches derive their life from the vine, and the vine produces its fruit through the branches. Jesus uses a lot of imagery in this passage. Vines, branches, fruit, abiding, pruning, cutting off, gathering branches to be burned. So to my thinking... Uh, we first need to get a sort of a bird's-eye view of the whole forest. Otherwise, it's going to feel like we're just hacking through dense jungle once we start going through this text verse by verse. So I want to begin just by explaining this metaphor, this extended metaphor. And to do that, we need to go back to elementary school English grammar. What's a simile? Or is that unfair just to spring that on you (laughs) this early in the day? Where are our English majors you're all, you're all a bunch of engineers. Okay, go ahead. What is it? it it's an explicit comparison using like or as. Or, oh, okay, it all comes back now, right? So, for example, 1 Peter one twenty four: all flesh is like grass. That's a simile. You use like or as. What's a metaphor? A metaphor is an implied comparison without like or as. So think of Isaiah 40, verse 6. All flesh is grass. That's a metaphor. Grant Osborne, in his book, The Hermeneutical Spiral, writes this. And this relates to the table on the reverse side of your sermon insert. So look at that. A metaphor or simile has three parts. And so you can just see these at the top part of that table. The item illustrated by the image. So think of flesh, the item. The image itself, grass, all flesh is like Grass and the point of similarity or comparison, the actual meaning of the metaphor or simile in the passage. Because what does all flesh is like grass mean? It means human life is transitory, right? It it withers and it fades away. That's how those three columns along the top work, the item, the image, and then the point of similarity. All right, well let's let's then plug in Jesus vineyard metaphor into those three columns. Our Lord says in verse 1, I am the true vine. Look with me at the table, the first row, row A. The point of similarity between Jesus, the item, and the true vine, the image, is they're both the exclusive source of fruitfulness. A vine pours its life into its branches which is the only way its branches can be fruitful. Verse 4b, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit, Jesus says, unless you remain in me. This means Jesus the vine is the exclusive source of fruitfulness for the Christian branches. So far so good? I'm not unpacking what any of this practically means yet. I'm just explaining the metaphor. Now, obviously, Jesus' role in all these verses is central. It's Jesus who's in the spotlight. Uh, but that doesn't mean that God the Father uh, is in the background off stage. Who is God the Father in this metaphor? He's the gardener. He's the heavenly vine dresser. Chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener, right? And, and what does God the Father, the vine dresser, do, right? His role is twofold. Verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that does not bear fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, he cleanses, so that it will be even more fruitful, So look at that table insert again, the second row across, row B. The point of similarity between God the Father, the item, and the vine dresser, the image, is that they both ensure increased fruitfulness. And God does so. He ensures, he increases fruitfulness by removing certain branches and by pruning others. Right? I mean, if you have a green thumb, then you know that's horticultural 101. We read in verse 2 that he prunes or he trims or he cleanses every branch that does bear fruit, which means no fruit bearing branch is exempt, right? If we follow the metaphor, God prunes all Christians. And how does God prune all the fruit bearing branches? The larger context of chapter 15 makes this clear through our internalizing Jesus' teachings, his, his words, his commands, as they are recorded in Scripture. Jesus' words. That's the gardener's pruning knife. And, of course, the Father's purpose in all this pruning is loving. Right? It's so that each branch will be even more fruitful. Which means... We're already bearing fruit, Christian, uh, but then God prunes us with Jesus' words, Jesus' teachings, and we're even more fruitful. But remember, God the Father's role in this is twofold. He's not just pruning all the fruit bearing branches. Jesus says in verse 2 that the Father cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. That means the heavenly gardener gets rid of the deadwood. And that's a theme that Jesus revisits in verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. The point being, New City, now hear this, there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of genuine Christianity. The alternative, Jesus says here, is deadwood. And being deadwood means that person, that branch, is not vitally, livingly connected to the vine. Again, I'm not unpacking what this practically means yet. I'm just explaining the metaphor. But this takes us now to the third row, row C, where we see that those who are connected to Jesus are the branches. And please note, this is absolutely essential. There are two different kinds of branches connected to the vine. There are the fruitless branches, and there are fruitful branches, right? That is, counterfeit, phony believers and genuine believers. And what's the point of the similarity? It's their connection to the source of fruitfulness, the true vine, whether it's living and vital or non-living. Now, don't be confused by that. I see some of the theologians out there sort of scratching their heads and squinting at me. Um, This throws a lot of people for a loop. We need to be careful not to bring in all of our orthodox union with Christ theology Uh, into this metaphor and make it run on all fours. Uh, In this metaphor, for this metaphor to work, there are dead, fruitless branches connected to the true life-giving vine, the source of fruitfulness. But it's a non-vital, non-living connection. See, there's no fruit. And as we read in verse 6, every unfruitful branch that's connected to the vine is removed thrown away dried up gathered cast into the fire and burned which is a picture of hell wayne grudem writes this the point in the imagery is simply that those who bear fruit give evidence that they are abiding in christ they're remaining in christ those who do not are not abiding in him and as jesus speaks these words to his 11 disciples Judas Iscariot, he's evidencing his, his own superficial connection to Jesus, isn't he? Uh, what's Judas Iscariot doing at this very moment? He's out getting paid to betray our Lord and Savior. This is row C in our table. Professing believers who do not produce fruit like Judas, they evidence a non-living connection to Jesus. In contrast to Judas, the eleven disciples are fruitful and clean, verse 3. Jesus says in verse 3, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. As one commentator notes, the cleansing power of the word that Jesus has spoken to his disciples, his teaching is equivalent to the life of the vine pulsating through the branches. It's already taken hold in the life of these eleven men. All this to say, believers who produce fruit like the eleven disciples evidence a living, vital connection to Jesus. Phony Christians do not. Verse two: He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while well, every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And look at row D in that table. The point of similarity between Jesus' words, the item, and the vine dresser's pruning knife, the implied image, is that they are the means or instrument of cleansing to increase fruitfulness. And it's, it's really important. It's good just to kind of clear the decks of any false thinking right at the outset here. We want to be very exegetically precise. Brothers and sisters, we could think of God's pruning instrument as being uncomfortable experiences, such as prolonged illness, or the loss of a job, or troubled finances, or the loss of a loved one. Uh, And it's true, it's true. God uses all those things to cleanse us, to refine us, to purify our faith, to discipline us, as we read in Hebrews 12. Uh, But that's not what Jesus is teaching in this text. Jesus' metaphor identifies the pruning instrument, the pruning knife, as his own words, his teachings, his commands. And every branch that bears fruit experiences the vine dresser's pruning. And every believer experiences the Father's pruning through Jesus' words, his commands. So, picture that pruning knife in God the Father's hand as it's hovering over your heart, Christian, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar in there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And of course, we then see in row E the point of similarity between fruit produced by those Christians connected to Jesus and fruit produced from natural branches connected to a natural grapevine is that they are the product of a vital living connection. There is fruit. Therefore, there is certainly a vital living connection to the vine, the exclusive source of fruitfulness. In order to produce fruit, Christians must remain vitally connected to the true life-giving vine. Without being connected to Jesus, we can do nothing. Jesus says so in, in verse 5b. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Therefore, we must abide, we must remain, we must reside in Jesus. Abiding in Jesus is necessary for fruitfulness, just as Jesus must abide in us. That's what we see when we come to the fourth point in our sermon today, our concluding wrap up point, but I want to introduce it to you right now. New City, as Jesus talks about fruit and fruitfulness all throughout this text all throughout the passage this is what he's talking about look at point four jesus explains the result of his abiding in believers when believers internalize jesus specific utterances we will make scripturally informed prayer requests and god will answer them (laughs) wow did you see that coming The fruit in this context, what a a, a believer produces, is the answers to those scripturally informed prayers. Bearing much fruit in this way glorifies God the Father and evidences that someone is actually Jesus' disciple. (laughs) What an amazing passage. All all of that, friends, in just eight verses. Do, Do you see why I've been sort of chomping at the bit to be able to preach this text to you? So, now that we understand the metaphor, the heavy exegetical spade work is behind us. And in the time remaining, and for those keeping track, we're at the halfway point now of the sermon, never fear. Uh, in the time remaining, I just want to unpack three implications of Jesus' command to abide in him, followed by three reasons for abiding in Jesus, before ending with Jesus explaining the results of his abiding in believers. There's so much happening in this passage. And again, it's just eight verses, but there's so much happening. Let me, let me just give us one peg, all right, to sort of hang our hat on and kind of guide us a bit here. Um, Christian, I want you to think of the remainder of this sermon like a doctor examining an x-ray of your heart. There you are. You're in the examining room. The doctor comes in. He puts your chest x-ray up to the light box that they're using these days. He examines it. And then he turns around and he basically tells you if you're going to live or if you're going to die. I'm not saying that for dramatic effect. It's apt. This text, this sermon is a heart x-ray. Are you a genuine Christian? Or are you a phony Christian? Abiding in Jesus, remaining in Jesus... Means obeying Jesus. So ask yourself, do you obey Jesus' teachings or not? Friend, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're a heaven bound forgiven sinner when you're not, Uh, when you prefer your sin to repentance and faithful living in Jesus Christ. If you would, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. This is on page. 972, if you're using our church Bible. Matthew seven twenty-one. This is Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers, and and what makes this judgment seem so tragic? is that these people take themselves to be true, real believers, don't they? I mean, they they expect to be granted admission into the consummated kingdom of God. They're shocked. They're unprepared. When Jesus, who they thought was their Savior, disowns them. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus tells us there are many people who use the right language and who even perform spiritual wonders in his name, who are not genuine disciples. So if that's the case, what is then the essential characteristic of the true believer, the genuine disciple of Jesus Christ? If it's not loud professions of Lord, Lord, or or spectacular spiritual triumphs, or great spiritual experiences, then, then what is it? I mean, was there ever a more important question in all of life, Christian, than to know what the answer is to that question? The true believer's chief characteristic is obedience. True believers perform the will of God the Father. True believers obey Jesus' words. We are not habitual, unrepentant evildoers, right? We are not habitual, unrepentant workers of lawlessness, as Carson puts it, the Father's will is not simply admired, discussed, praised, or debated. It's done. And so, Christian, look to your own life. Right now, as you sit in your chair, don't be spiritually deceived. Be honest with yourself. Be honest. Did you, did you perhaps enjoy some spiritual experience in the past? And, and now you're living in the glow of that past religious experience, you're kind of coasting on its fumes rather than living a present life of repentant faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. Not the obedience which earns merit points, but an obedience which bows the knee to Jesus' lordship in everything without reservation. Take this back to John 15 now. Abiding in Jesus, remaining in Jesus, that's the same Greek word, means obeying Jesus. So, do you obey Jesus or not? What does the heart x-ray tell you? Look at verse 4a, and we're moving now into our second point in the sermon outline. Jesus says, remain in me, abide in me. As I also remain in you. And notice, Jesus isn't telling the 11 disciples, get connected, get plugged in, start residing in the true vine and live. No, he's telling them, you 11 disciples, you already are abiding. He's just told them in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What Jesus is telling them in verse 4a is stay connected, remain in me. And and here is great encouragement for our soul, loved ones, encouragement flowing directly through a, a precise and balanced understanding of this text. Believers are already vitally, livingly connected to Jesus. That's truth that we want to hold very close to our hearts. Christian, if if you are a fruitful branch whom the Father is pruning with Jesus' words, if you're obeying God's grace assisting you, Jesus commands, all of them, then that goes to show, that demonstrates, that you are already livingly, vitally connected to the true vine and you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Praise God. But you must maintain this vital connection to Jesus Christ. It's a non-optional responsibility. You must remain in Jesus, just as you are equally required and responsible for Jesus to abide in you. Just listen to these passages. Matthew 10:22. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. John 8:31. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. John 14, 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Philippians two twelve, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Hebrews three fourteen we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Revelation 3.11. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that, you will, so that no one will take your crown. So what do you think? Can a genuine Christian lose their salvation? Uh, do passages like this overthrow the doctrine of perseverance. What about grace, right? How can Jesus command this? Remain in me, abide in me, after saying back in chapter 10, verse 28, I give my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. See, that that sounds like a done deal to me. Christian, what we need to understand is that in God preserving us in the faith... God uses means. And those means include the exhortations and the threatenings and the promises of his most holy word. Do you see So, commands such as as these, this this list of texts that I just read, they are a God-ordained means for the believer's perseverance. Anthony Hokema writes this, Passages of this sort do not overthrow the doctrine of perseverance. They warn us against a misunderstanding of this teaching. They underscore our responsibility and our perseverance. Texts like this tell us that it's only as we prayerfully endure to the end, hold fast to what we have, continue in Christ's word, and remain in Christ that we enjoy the blessing of perseverance. So Jesus says in verse 4, "...remain in me, abide in me, stay connected." Christian, you already are vitally, livingly connected to Jesus. But the the sad fact is, many Christians, millions of Christians, yearn to become abiding believers. They don't abide yet, so they think. But one day, they hope, they will abide, they will remain in Jesus." They will become, they will become an abiding believer, which is an experience they view as a deeper, more intimate, resting in Jesus, a second tier to the Christian life, a second blessing. Christian, have you ever heard someone say, or have you ever said, I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was 10 years old, and I accepted Christ as my Lord when I was 20 years old? That's very common. Not a few members of New City have testimonies like that. And there are always two steps. First, the person gets saved, and then at some later point, they get serious about repenting of sin and living a holy life. I don't have time to get into the complexities of this right now. We, we actually we just covered this topic in our First Corinthians sermon series, but in part, it's related to a serious misunderstanding of John 15. It comes from a bad understanding of what it means to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ. I heard this sort of thing in my church growing up all the time. The Christians who comprised the free Methodist church my family attended, uh, the pastor would say, we're living a defeated life rather than a victorious life, a lower life rather than a higher life, a shallow life rather than a deeper life a fruitless life rather than a more abundant life. They were carnal, not spiritual. They had experienced the first blessing but still needed the second blessing, the abundant life, the full life. Jesus was their Savior, but he wasn't yet their Master. He wasn't their Lord. So the pastor would encourage the congregation to make Jesus their Master or dedicate themselves through surrender and faith and to let go and let God. They needed to abide in Christ. And this sort of teaching is very, very common in the evangelical church today, and it's dead wrong. But it's so appealing because Christians struggle with sin. We hate sin, and we want to be victorious in that struggle right now. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, wouldn't you love a silver bullet that puts to death all sin in your life so you can start living a life of victory? And then someone, maybe maybe even your pastor, comes along and says, just abide in Jesus. Remain in him. You're not at the present moment, but if you do, when you do, you can have that higher life. So it's coming from a good desire. Shortcuts like this to instant victory over sin appeals to genuine longings for holiness. That's what we want. But if this is the approach that we're taking, a second blessing of a higher spiritual life, filled with the Spirit, abiding in Christ, brother, sister, this quick fix to our struggle with sin will not result in a victorious life, a higher life, a deeper life, a more abundant life. It will result in a misguided, frustrated, delusioned, and or destroyed life. It's not a biblical view of sanctification, of progressive holiness. It's not biblical. It doesn't work. It's like I said last week so much mental anguish and suffering in the Christian's experience is tied to false expectations. And Satan exploits those false expectations with great success. Christian, do you want to abide in Jesus? How does Jesus say we do that? By obeying his words. Christian, do you want Jesus to abide in you. Jesus says he does abide in you to the degree that his words abide in you. Christian, do you want to bear fruit for Jesus? Do you want to bear even more fruit for Jesus as you are pruned by God, the heavenly vine dresser? How does God do that? Through Jesus' words. Jesus' teachings and commands are God the Father's pruning knife. Christian, do you want to see your prayers answered as you petition God with scripturally informed prayer requests to the Father's glory? How does that happen? Verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Right? Jesus' words, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' commands. If such things are precious to you, then God doesn't have to Guilt trip, a promise out of you to read and study your Bible more diligently. Or get serious about getting to church on Sunday mornings on time so that you and your family can hear the Word sung and read publicly and prayed and preached. By God's grace, you'll have been seized by this beautiful text. You'll be seized, but you'll understand it. And your holy desire for all these good things will motivate you like never before. Believers are already vitally connected to Jesus, but Christians must maintain our connection to Jesus. It's, it's a non-optional responsibility, just as believers are equally required and responsible for Jesus to abide in us. Commands such as this are a God-ordained means for Christian perseverance. To die in your deathbed, who knows how many decades down the, down the road, a Christian all this from the first part of verse 4. But after commanding the 11 disciples to abide in him, Jesus gives three reasons that they should abide in him. Is our third point. Don't worry, this will be two minutes long before closing with our fourth point. Number three, Jesus' reasons for abiding. First, fruitfulness is impossible apart from abiding in Jesus. And, and Christian, if there was ever a time that our Lord and Savior sort of sat you down and, and lovingly sort of took your your face between his hands and he looked into your eyes and he made an emphatic assertion it's right here verse 4b no branch can bear fruit by itself it must remain in the vine neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me i am the vine you are the branches if you remain in me and i in you you will bear much fruit apart from me you can do nothing so do you see continuous dependence on the true vine, Jesus. a constant reliance upon him, persistent spiritual imbibing of his life, that is the essential condition for spiritual fruitfulness. And of course, when we remain in Jesus, when we abide in him, when we obey Jesus' words, and his word remains in us, that results in Fruitfulness. Jesus guarantees it. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But, friends, failing to abide, failing to remain in Jesus when his words do not reside within us, when we do not obey his commands, that results in eternal damnation, hell. That results in Jesus saying on the last day, Away from me, you evildoer, you worker of lawlessness. Verse 6, If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. And the fruitless branch in verse 2, and the burned branch that does not remain in Jesus in verse 6, they're the same branch. These are people who superficially appear to be attached to Jesus, but they're not livingly attached to Jesus. They are phony Christians, professing Christians who do not obey Jesus' words. And 1 John 2.19 describes such people. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Brothers and sisters, if any of us can skim over a verse like John fifteen six, as we casually presume upon the grace of God, without serious self-reflection all because we said the sinner's prayer back when we were 12 at a Christian camp and invited Jesus into our heart or because we went forward after a church service 20 years ago or because we're baptized members of New City Baptist Church or because we're a pastor or because we're a deacon then we are behaving foolishly with wanton disregard for our souls. Look at verse 10. If... You keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Christian, do you want to remain in Jesus' love? Then keep Jesus' commands. There is a relational love at stake that must be nurtured and preserved between Jesus and his people. God placed this warning, and others like it, in the Bible for a reason. It's a warning for all professing Christians, for you and for me. It's not, first and foremost, for the person sitting behind us who needs a, a good kick in the spiritual pants. So thank God they came out to the church today to hear this sermon. Beloved, it's so easy to be deceived, self-deceived by sin, which is why we must constantly test our thoughts and our attitudes by the light and purity of God's most holy word. We need to be able to say along with King David in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate Every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. See, that is how we abide in Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced what Jesus is ultimately speaking of here are the blessings of the new covenant, when God, the Holy Spirit, comes and indwells God's people. He's looking ahead now, 50 days to Pentecost. What does God promise in Ezekiel 36, 26? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Or he promises in Jeremiah 31. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Those new covenant blessings of a renewed heart, a right mind, and the Spirit's indwelling presence moving God's people to obey God's commands and thus abiding in Jesus, bearing fruit, and being vitally connected, that's what Jesus is speaking of here in John 15. It's as he said back in John six sixty-three. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Well, I'd love to preach for another hour, but we need to start wrapping things up. On to our final point, New City, number four. This is verses seven and eight. And this is the big one. This is where everything comes together where Jesus speaks of the results of his abiding in us. Because remember, Jesus abides in believers to the degree that his words abide in us. And believers abide in Jesus to the degree that we obey his words. So look with me at your sermon outline. Number four, when believers internalize Jesus' specific utterances. That is, when we know what Jesus taught and our mind is informed and renewed by Jesus' words when his words indeed are a lamp for our feet, a light to our path, and we have actively appropriated its truth into our life, when, we, when believers internalize Jesus' words, we will make scripturally informed prayer requests. And God will answer them. That, Christian, is the result, that's the fruit of Jesus abiding in the true believer. It's not the only result, of course. Um, If we work through the entire chapter, uh, we see that the fruit is everything that's the product of effective prayer in Jesus' name and to which is to the Father's glory, including obedience to Jesus' commands in verse 10, uh, experience of Jesus' joy in verse 11, love for one another in verse 12, and witness to the world, verse 16 and 27. But in the isolated context that we're considering this morning, this is the result mentioned by Jesus. The fruit, what a believer produces, is the answers to our scripturally informed prayers. Bearing much fruit in this way glorifies God the Father and evidences that someone is Jesus' disciple. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, but okay. ask, is Jesus, is Jesus really saying what it sounds like he's saying? Verse 7, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And we should know, this actually isn't the only time Jesus speaks like this in the fourth gospel. 14, 13 to 14. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. John 16, 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Does Jesus really mean that? I'm here to tell you, yes, 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 he does. All right, then what does praying in Jesus' name mean? Does it mean if we tack that phrase onto the end of our prayer, in Jesus' name I pray, amen, we always get what we wish for? I know one thing, people. It doesn't work out that way in real life. I've tried many a time. In my Christian pilgrimage, I've sung along with Janice Joplin. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? That's a sermon unto itself. I'm just going to tell you. At the very least, prayer in Jesus' name is prayer that's in accord with all that name stands for who Jesus is. It means we're praying in a way that's in accord with Jesus' character, His wishes, His revealed goals. And in recognition that the only approach to God those who pray in enjoy, our only way to God, is Jesus Himself. And, we're praying in a way that seeks God's glory. First and foremost... That, we, that, that he would hallow his own name. And all our prayers, every prayer, every request, is consciously uttered under Christ's lordship in accordance with his will. His will. And that last one is the big one. If you think of 1 John five fourteen. this is the assurance we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Praying according to his will in that context isn't very different from praying in Jesus' name. And that's not, that's not some, some pious way of singing along with Doris Day, K, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. No, friends, this is a powerful, this is a specific promise which we badly need to learn to use a little better. All of us. If we ask anything according to God's will, He will hear us. But here's the question. How do we know if something is according to God's will? Because we aren't going to hear a voice with a refined British accent speaking to our heart, telling us what to do, what to think, how to behave, how to live, and how to pray. Brothers and sisters, we must open up the scriptures and be taught by God. When believers internalize Jesus' specific utterances, when we we know what Jesus taught and our mind is informed and renewed by Jesus' words, when his word is indeed a, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and we have actively appropriated its truth into our life, we will make scripturally informed prayer requests prayer that's in accord with all Jesus' name stands for. Who Jesus is. His character, his wishes, his revealed goals. Prayer that seeks God's glory, first and foremost, and in accordance with his will, and God will answer them. That, Christian, is the result. That's the fruit of Jesus abiding in the true believer. And that, in turn, will inform how we pray, why we pray, And what we pray for. New City, I truly believe the requests we make to God in prayer identify our level, our degree of abiding in Christ. I think that comes right out of this text. The requests that we make to God in prayer identify our level, our degree of abiding in Christ. If we're asking God for all the wrong things, in all the wrong ways, with all the wrong motivations, it's unlikely we're rightly abiding in Jesus. We need to recalibrate our prayer life. Perhaps there's need for a radical, fundamental shift in our approach to prayer, our attitude, our heart posture, our expectations, our theology. Our view of God himself. So let me close with this. A little heart surgery homework. Christian, are we able to say to our unbelieving family, our friends, our neighbors, in this particular matter, I prayed to the Lord. And the Lord answered my prayer. I'm a fruit-bearing branch the Lord answered my scripturally informed prayer to the glory of God the Father, thus evidencing that I am Jesus' genuine disciple, even though I didn't receive what I prayed for. I trust you see in how I formulated that question, which way the answer lies. right? If we can't say that, then how we're praying is wrong. We need to do some reverse engineering using the word of God as our template. Let me put that to you another way. If there's no way God can answer our prayer, at least in the way that we've formulated it, Lord, give me, Lord, enable me, Lord, heal me, Lord, promote me, and not contradict Jesus' promise in John 15, then we're praying wrong. If we think that we've put God in a a theological full Nelson and he must either cry uncle and grant our request a la John 15 or be proved a liar, we're praying wrong. Beloved, it's never going to be the case that God is a liar and Jesus' promises in John 15 are extravagantly deceptive. The fault lies with us. We haven't been sufficiently molded by the word of God. Jesus' words do not abide in us to the extent that they should. And so, we're praying unbiblical prayers to an unbiblical God. A benevolent genie who does my bidding. A spiritual vending machine who gives me what I order. A God who panders to my inflated ego, whose sovereign perfect will and the glory of his own name is subordinated to To my perceived needs. A little G God who marches to my tune. Not the God who has revealed himself in his most holy word. Beloved, prayer is not about us. First and foremost, our prayers are not for our sake. First and foremost, they're for the glory of God's name. Every prayer. Every time. And we need to express our requests to God in such a way that that's understood. And it's for our benefit that we keep rehearsing that to ourselves. The posture of our heart in prayer, our approach to God, how we pray, our expectation of God in answering our prayer, it's always motivated, it's always guarded by God's will and God's glory. Now, obviously, what Jesus says in John 15 isn't everything the Bible teaches about prayer. Prayer is a massive topic that needs whole Bible balance as well as exegetical precision. But Lord willing, this will set us off on a faithful prayer trajectory in New City. Come to prayer meeting on Thursday night. Let's put this into practice. A Christian's prayer life, a church's corporate prayer life, must be consumed with the desire for the honoring of God's name, the glory of his name in us, through us, because of us, before all the world. And so Jesus promises, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Amen.